Welcome to a conversation of change with Dr. Jen Fram, where we talk all things leadership, change, and transformation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this uh, special edition of the podcast, which is a six-part audio book element, if you like, uh, of my book, Conversations of Change, A Guide to Implementing Workplace Change. If you are new to this podcast, I'm Dr. Jen Fram. You've currently come in at Chapter 5, and so I'd encourage you or invite you to scroll back to perhaps Chapter 1 so that you can start from the beginning. And for those who have continued to listen along, that's fabulous. I hope that you're finding it uh, of value. As I said earlier in the previous episodes, really keen for feedback on this as a concept. There's been a number of requests to turn my book into an audio book, and I'm not convinced on the benefits or the merits of doing so. Um, And if I get feedback which says this has been excellent and shared a lot, um, then maybe I'd look at that. But uh, either way, keen to hear what you think. Okay, so let's start with chapter five, start with the end in mind. Okay, so far you have worked your way through some of the core components of the domain of change management, gained some clarity on who are the key characters in change, and considered who you need and how you might recruit them. Before you go any further, you should spend some time framing up what success will look like for you. You really can't go past Stephen Covey's classic principle, start with the end in mind, when shaping up success. Now, successful change for me involves three elements, the clarity of purpose, understanding of the enablers of success, and the ability to measure that success. They form a three-legged platform of change. When you lose one of them, things get a little bit unstable. So let's consider each one. Purpose. We hear a lot of the why of change being important, but I think the rationale for change can be very different to purpose. The rationale or why of change is the objective that drives the initiative. We're doing this because we want to reduce operational expenses. We're doing this because we want to become more customer-centric, innovative, insert your buzzword of the day. We are doing this to enable better management of our records. Now, when presented with an objective of change, it's often easy to say, so what? So purpose goes deeper than that. Purpose is the thing that people will get out of bed for, that they'll work long hours for, that they will take risks for. If you get purpose right, it's harder to say, so what? Because purpose is meaningful and enduring. Purpose speaks to personal identity and organizational mission. It drives the why of what your organisation does, or in a future state, should do. At this point, the concept of purpose is either immediately obvious to you, because you've got it and you know it because you're already living a purposeful working life in a company that is purpose-driven, and it's easy to articulate your change objective in context of the organisation's purpose that the employees embrace. Or it's incredibly, incredibly nebulous and you realise you've never really stopped to think about it. And perhaps this is raising some uncomfortable feelings. You know what? I think that's fantastic. If after some serious rumination you cannot articulate the purpose, then stop moving forward on the change. It will fall over, or at the least not be sustainable or yield the benefits that you're hoping for. 
The second element, understanding of the enablers of success. Now, no doubt, when you first started talking to people about your intent to drive change, you would have heard some folk talk about how hard change is. They may have thrown out statistics that show the vast majority of change fails. And you may have thought, what have I done? Well, at the end of this chapter, I unpack the 70% of change fails myth. But for now, what I propose is listing the elements that enable successful change. Now, it's a long list, and to that end, those who say change is hard are correct. One of the foundation fathers of change management is Kurt Lewin, and he is most well known for his three phases of change, unfreezing, unfreezing, changing, and refreezing. As an aside, more information has come out now since the publishing of this book to show that he actually never created those three stages or implied that that's what change was. They were inferences of some of his unfinished work. So while this is a relatively useful way of looking at change from a helicopter view, it tells you little about how to change in the real world. And it's not a simple three-step process, and there's no fail-safe recipe. You do need to mix the ingredients to suit your diners. So if I think about the change that I've worked with and the organizations I've worked with, the elements that I've seen contribute to successful change are clarity of purpose and the change objective, clarity of understanding of the current state, the future state, and the size of the gap, so across the systems or processes and behaviors, people to lead the change, people to drive the change, people to manage the change, project teams that are resourced to make change happen, the end user or the audience being involved in the design of the change, so not having it thrust upon them, a culture that values learning and is comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty, strong communication, not just of the change, but during the change, and programs designed to build the audience readiness to change. Now, I use the recipe analogy above, and to some extent, you do get to be the creative chef in this. So, for example, if you do not have enough clarity of understanding of the current state, the future state, and the size of the gap, you can still be successful with a culture that values learning and is comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty and some strong people to lead the change. Clarity becomes emergent in the process. If you do not have a lot of clarity of purpose and the change objective, you can get across the line with strong communication and early involvement of stakeholders in the design. Purpose becomes emergent in the process. Now, while my counsel is to consider the elements of change success before you get started, this is a great list to review on a periodic basis as a health check before you need to take remedial action. Now on that, the ability to measure success. When I talk to leaders and steering committees about change success, I use three categories to understand change success metrics. So I talk to them about installation, benefits realization, and the process of change. Now, if you are not considering these before you start your change, you will not be able to evaluate how you're going. Measuring the success of installation of a change can occur pretty shortly after you go live, whereas the other two can occur prior to go live and at periodic intervals post go live. But a consideration first of project success and its relationship to change success. Project success. Most of the change projects we work are deemed successful by project success measures like delivered in full, on time, on budget. But this alone is not sufficient. 
I think we can all think of projects where it looked good from a delivery perspective, but user adoption was low and the benefits were limited. From a change management perspective, I tend to be interested in this, but not ruled by it. Ultimately, changes in scope, time delays and cost blowouts create a lot more stakeholder engagement and expectation management. So you want to contribute to a strong result here, but it really doesn't measure the success of change. User adoption or employee compliance. User adoption tends to be used in technology and systems implementations, and it talks about to what extent does the user adopt the new system and its features. You can also consider employee compliance in the same bucket. So does anything actually change? Are people using the new system? Are they behaving in a new way? Are they using new processes? Successful installation is dependent on something actually changing. Now, I know this sounds obvious, but it's a real oversight in the change success discussions. Often, the discussions focus on benefits realisation, and if the benefits are not achieved, it can be argued that the change management team didn't do a good enough job and needs to improve its practice. But the reasons behind low benefits realisation are many and varied. For example, the change team may have had great installation results, but the original logic behind the change was flawed and wasn't sustainable. It's in this category that traditional change readiness surveys and polls come in handy. Being able to poll for will they make the change and can they make the change pre-go live puts you in a much stronger place at the time of installation. You can target your efforts with remediation or intervention to ensure good user adoption and employee compliance measurement. Ultimately, you're looking for things like metrics on logins of the new system, new processes being followed, calls to support structures decreasing or perhaps increasing. Now, common sense tells you that 100% adoption on day one is unlikely, but with some careful thought, you can identify a baseline metric for the current state and expected usage or compliance over time. Benefits Realisation It's a rare change initiative where you can measure benefits realisation immediately after going live. If you can, then you are working on something that was pretty broken to start with, because benefits often take some time to start to become apparent. This can be because it takes um, some time for new habits to form with behavioural change, proficiency to increase with systems usage, or business cycles to play out. The type of things that you're looking to measure here are tangible measures, speed to market, cost of transaction, cycle time, full-time employee release, speed of processes, and employer engagement increase. I'm sorry, employee engagement increase. It can help to think about your benefits in stages. So at 30 days post-installation or go live, the date at which you launch your change, what would you expect to see that you would suggest things are tracking well? at 60 days, at 90 days. Sometimes you need to consider what you can't see and hear as success. In organisational environments that are known for vocal opposition to change, sometimes measuring silence tells you something about success. Change process success. It's very informative to measure how effective the actual change process was because nothing kills a future change faster than the legacy of poorly executed change. Some of the things that we can consider along the way are periodic assessments of where people are on the change curve. So awareness, understanding, buy-in, commitment. Do the people feel empowered? 
And then the one that really makes a difference is the campsite rule. Think about nature conservationists. They implore us to leave the campsite in a better state than when we got there. The same goes for change management. Really successful change management means that you've built change capability and considered sustainable change. Your organisation has a higher state of change maturity at the end of your change initiative than before you started. Now, personally, I don't think it matters what the metrics are that you decide on as much as it matters that you have this conversation with those that matter. You need to be thinking about what your metrics are. It can be incredibly powerful to have a rich discussion on what success looks like with organisational leaders, the steering committee and project teams to align expectations and education about change management. Only then can we start to move away from the puffery of 70% of change projects fail and start to have conversations that yield better results of change. So I then go in to share the story about 70% of change fail and how it's a load of codswallop. So a few years ago, business academic Mark Hughes published a compelling critique of the 70% of change fails, and it validated what a few of us in the industry had been thinking, that it can't be true. I wrote a lengthy blog post on it, and I'll link that into uh, this particular podcast episode, and The essence of it is as follows. So, once upon a time, in a galaxy far, far away, back in 1993, Professor Michael Hammer and consulting firm chairman James Champy published the book Re-Engineering the Corporation. And this is based on research on business process re-engineering, BPR, initiatives. BPR initiatives in the 80s and 90s meant very large organisational changes. And so the book contains success case studies of IBM, Ford Motor Company, Hallmark and Taco Bell. But what resonated with the business community was the following statement. They say on page 200, Sadly, we must report that despite the success stories described in previous chapters, many companies that begin re-engineering don't succeed at it. Our unscientific estimate is that as many as 50% to 70% of the organisations that undertake a re-engineering effort do not achieve the dramatic results they are intended. So, they said an unscientific estimate. No definitions of success. No investigation of validity of expectations. Just 70% of BPR projects fail. It's pretty sexy stuff. Now, in 1996, Professor John Cotter publishes the article Leading Change in the Harvard Business Review. Now, rather than quote studies, he notes that he has observed over 100 companies in previous 10 years with success varying. He's circumspect about success and failure rates and notes that the varying stages and reasons for difficulty. Cotter's 1996 work is often referenced as a source of the 70% change fail statistic, but it's not in this article. The eight-step framework is in this one. Later in 2000, researchers Michael Beer and Nishin Naraya published Cracking the Code of Change in the Harvard Business Review, HBR. The article is about their work on Theory O and Theory E of change. But the sentence that grabs the attention of the consulting world is almost a throwaway line at the beginning. The brutal fact is that about 70% of all change initiatives fail. So there's nothing to support it, no mention of where this fact has come from or how the figure has emerged to be a brutal fact. 
but it does set up a need for an alternative theory of change, such as theory E and theory O. Now, from an academic perspective, Mark Hughes published a fascinating challenge to the statistic in the Journal of Change Management in 2011. So from his analysis, many of the subsequent published papers form a version of a set of academic matrioska dolls. Um, And as an aside, I, I did a similar activity after I read that and looked through the industry papers. And when we say that they're a, uh, a set of matrioska dolls, what's happened is you go to the end of the industry paper to look at where their references are. And each one of them references another paper, which when you go back to that one, you find that all of them come back to the original 70% citation from Hammer and Champy and Beer and Naraya. So the mind boggles how many times this statistic has set up a justification for the academics following endeavours. And indeed, he notes that Michael Hammer has distanced himself from the original statement. So in a later paper, Hammer and Stanton state, unfortunately, this simple descriptive observation has been widely misrepresented and transmogrified and distorted into a normative statement. There is no inherent success or failure rate for re-engineering. As a second aside, how good is the word transmogrify? We really don't use it enough. Um, That is your challenge after this episode is to use the word transmogrify in the following week. Have some fun. Now, back to the brief. These two sources, Hammer and Champy and Beer and Naraya, made the curriculum reading list of pretty much every undergrad and postgrad in the Western world and thus influenced a very large cohort of managers, consultants, project managers, and change management practitioners. The figure gets a life of its own. In 2008, in a sense of urgency, Professor John Cotter estimates more than 70% of needed change fails. His website states 30 years of research by leadership uh, guru Dr. John Cotter has proven that 70% of all major change efforts in organisations fail. Now, I understand that someone who researches in this area may be reluctant to challenge this and ask to see the research to evaluate its design, because some sacred cows you don't touch. And so from an academic perspective, you've got a choice at this point. Do you position yourself against famous professors with best-selling books and challenge the unscientific statement and estimates? You know, to challenge Beer and Naraya on the brutal fact is to distract from what's a pretty useful theory and contribution to change with Theory X and Theory O. Maybe you need to wait 20 years to do so, and it may be more prudent for career progression to stand on the shoulders of giants and build incremental knowledge on 70% failure rates. So then, large consulting firms and IT vendors get in on the act. And somewhere along the line, some pretty good studies on project implementation and benefits get further twisted into persistent myth that 70% of all change projects fail. Now, statistics like that can be really useful in selling services and products because they create fear. If you don't use our services, you could be part of the 70% and that would be bad. Um, Industry heavyweights and thought leaders continue to popularise the statistic. Daryl Connor uses it as a big stick to beat up change practitioners and admonish them to do better. Why, after 30 years, are we still having 70% of our change projects fail? We must be culpable. Ron Ashkenaz recently used it in the HBR again. And once it's in the HBR, Harvard Business Review, it must be true. But it's not. 
Look, here's six reasons why. First, the definition of change project is questionable. If it's not resourced with change practitioners and uses a change methodology, can you actually claim it was a change project? Two, the definition of success is questionable. Do we need something to be 100% successful, 90%, 70%? At what point is something successful? Three, success is measured at the wrong time. As noted above, there'll be different success criteria and timing for in-flight change, installation and benefits realisation. Four, the units of analysis are not the same. The multiple studies reference reference different types of companies, industries and types of change. Five, and this is part of where the logic got a bit um, a bit strange for me and a number of my practitioners, because we don't think that we're that special. Uh, for this statistic to be true, I would have had to have had 70% of my change initiatives shelved as failures, and so would my peers, but we don't. And then finally, I think that would be a really career-limiting admission for a CEO. Seriously, you want me to believe that 70% of the world's CEOs have led failed change efforts. Even if the surveys are anonymous, somewhere there are 70% of company boards looking at poor performances from their CEOs. And I really struggle with that. So look, what does this mean to you as a manager who's about to, to be responsible for change? Don't be afraid of change. 70% do not fail. Change can be difficult, but if you resource it well, you're clear on how you're going to measure success and you keep track of those metrics and take corrective measures if needed, you're going to be fine. I can promise you that. So to the part of the chapter with conversation starters, some of the conversations you might want to have right now are, what is your personal purpose? What is your organizational purpose? Why do you exist? How does this change align with the purpose of the organization? What does success look like to you at this moment? How will success be paced? What are the different ways of measuring success at different points? And then if we pop back and we think about the implications for your choice and adventure. So those on adventure one, you don't know what the change is to be. You've got no internal change resources and you do have budget. In this instance, purpose becomes your true north. As you navigate your way through the initial conversations of change, shaping up the design of the solution to your problem, you will benefit from regularly checking the alignment to purpose. If you're unclear what the change is, it's important to consider milestone-based success measures. It will be difficult to establish an installation or benefits realisation metric up front. This will become clearer as you progress through. Initially, you'll want to focus on the process of change as your area to measure. In working through the uncertainty and ambiguity, how are your people feeling? What is the level of contribution that you're seeing? What are the implications of all this talk about change on their productivity? For those on Adventure 2, you do know what the change is to be. You have no internal change resources, but you do have budget. Now, you're starting with clarity on the change to be implemented, which can be really useful. But have you leaped ahead without considering purpose? If the change makes no sense to your people from a heart and soul level, success is going to be challenged. As you recruit and onboard your change resources, the definition of success needs to be overt and open conversation with them as ultimately how you define the success of your initiative becomes their performance metric. So are they effective in achieving these results? 
Be very clear that the metric that you're using for change is aligned with the duration of time you have them around for. If you've not included them in the design of the change, it's less likely you can measure their performance with the success of your change. Similarly, if they are contractors or internal resources who are not around to do the embedding work, it's unfair to align those performance metrics with your benefit realisation. Adventure 3. You do know what the change is to be, you've got internal change resources and you do have budget. You too need to do a quick check on alignment with purpose. You're all set up to go, but it will be a false start if the change is not aligned with the broader purpose of the organisation. Check with your internal resources on how they have measured success in the past. It may be that measuring success is unfamiliar to them and it'll be useful to go through the return on investment exercise to formulate messaging for your stakeholders on why this initiative is so important. So what are the costs of not doing it? Do lead a conversation with them on what they've seen work well in the organisation before. So what's the optimum recipe for success? Adventure 4. You may or may not know what the change is to be. You've got no internal change resources. You've got no budget to hire anyone. So I'm guessing someone has a pretty strong agenda for change to put you in this position. Change must happen. Start with that person and have a conversation on what the purpose of the organisation is and how that does align with the need to change and the ability to not resource the change. If that conversation fails to change your circumstances, then you do need to look at the enablers of success with an eye for frugal ingredients. You can still measure success. It may be that your success is just more modest than others and reality checks will be very important. So that brings us to the end of chapter five uh, and you should be feeling a little bit more confident in how you start to shape up the rest of your change program. In the next chapter, which will be the last one in part A, shaping up the decisions you need to make, I'm going to review uh, the most popular and common change models and frameworks to give you a sense of uh, how structured you need to be and what potential you've got out there. But for now, I hope that's been really helpful and I look forward to chatting to you tomorrow on chapter six. You've been listening to a conversation of change with Dr. Jen Fram. You can find many more resources on leading change at my website, drjenfram.com. I welcome feedback on what else you'd like to hear on the podcast. Why not connect with me on Twitter at Jen Fram or LinkedIn? 